Good morning. It's really nice to be with you again. Jamie, thank you for that introduction and giving me credit for things I don't deserve, like writing the Divine Comedy. I'm not that old. Um, I will take this opportunity, however, to plug another project of mine with no commercial value to me whatsoever. Um, any of you know the name Phil Vischer? He's the guy who created VeggieTales, the computer animated produce that teaches your children about God. Um, Phil's actually a good friend of mine. I had the benefit of baptizing Phil, which someone else joked must have been a veggie dip. Um, <laughs> well, Phil came to me a few months ago and he said, you know, I, frankly, I'm kind of bored with Christian radio and all the Christian podcasts that are out there are just more preachers, you know, mouthing off about whatever. He said, let's do a podcast together and we could make it a little bit different. So uh, this month we launched the Phil Vischer podcast and it, it, it's pretty bizarre. Um, if you could imagine in one moment we're talking about the theological merits of religious freedom or the challenge of new atheism, and then the next minute we're talking about the possible superpowers you might get if a radioactive hawk pooped on you. So it's, it's VeggieTales goofiness with some serious theological and cultural analysis, some great interviews. This Tuesday we're releasing one with an interview of uh, Oz Guinness, brilliant man about the challenge of freedom in the United States. So anyway, I just want to recommend that to you on iTunes. You can look it up. It's the Phil Vischer podcast. Our goal is to get enough traction on this thing to keep it going. So your help on that would be really appreciated. Um, okay, now to more important matters. We're going to start in Japan. Along the coast of Japan, on the ocean, in the mountainsides, there are stone markers, some of them very old, dating back six, seven hundred years. And on these markers are engravings, warnings. Some of them simply warn about the threat of a tsunami if there's an earthquake. Others warn future generations not to build any homes lower than those stone markers on the mountainside because of the threat of the ocean coming in and wiping them out. Well, as Japan transitioned into a very modern and technologically advanced society, they ignored these warnings of their ancestors. Of course, they built huge cities and elaborate communities right along the coast. They believed that they didn't have to heed those ancient warnings because of their technology. Early warning systems and seawalls and everything else that they had developed would protect them from any possible threat. Well, two years ago in March, they discovered they were wrong. When that earthquake happened under the sea floor in the Pacific Ocean and a tsunami came rushing into shore, whole communities were devastated. Estimates are that about 20,000 people were killed, and Japan was humbled by the power of the sea. What Japan learned is something that if we study history, we should know by now, and that is control is an illusion. We often think that we have control over our lives, over our world, over our surroundings, but eventually something will happen that reminds us this is a chaotic universe. We can't predict what's going to happen, and even if we think we can, all the safeguards we put in place are never enough. At some point or another, the ocean is going to sweep into our lives and humble us, washing away the things we thought we had built to protect ourselves. So it can be a tsunami in Japan, it can be a hurricane in the Gulf Coast, or it could be something far more personal, the loss of a job, the crash of a stock market, the end of a marriage, a bad diagnosis, the list could go on and on and on. But sooner or later, the things we have constructed in our lives that we believe control our surroundings and give us a sense of hope will be washed away. So the question is then, in the midst of this very chaotic and dangerous world, where do we put our hope? 
Where do we find security, solid ground, an anchor that will hold in the midst of life's storms? An overused analogy, perhaps, in Christian circles, but a good one still. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And to do that, I hope you have a Bible handy. We're actually going to go from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And I have two more services I'm supposed to preach at, so we could be here for a while. But we're going to look at the whole Bible because this is a theme that I really want to draw you through and help you see how consistently Scripture teaches about this. And what's interesting is that one of the core metaphors of the Bible that we don't think about, mostly because of our context, both geographically and historically, is the metaphor of the sea. Like the ancient... Japanese, the ancient Hebrews were also very, very uh, skittish about the ocean. They were not a seafaring people. They saw the ocean as a very foreboding and sort of dangerous realm. It was seen as the dark abyss, this moving, shifting, unpredictable realm of creation. And so for the ancient Hebrews, the ocean or the sea became synonymous with the realm of evil. And throughout their scriptures, they often show the sea as, uh, as that which stands in opposition to the God of Israel. This God they believed was a God of order and peace and abundance and beauty. And the sea for them represented a place not of order, or beauty, or abundance, but of chaos and scarcity and danger. And you see that right from the opening words of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void And darkness was over the surface of the deep. This dark, chaotic world of water. And then we read that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So into this chaotic primordial sea, the Spirit of God hovers over it. And then he begins to draw order out of the chaos. He separates the waters of the sea from the sky, and then he separates the sea from the land, and then he takes the land and begins to fill it with beauty and abundance, vegetation and animals. So by the end of Genesis 1, the Lord can declare on the final day that this creation which had begun in darkness and water and chaos was now good. And then the story continues. He takes one particular patch of this new world, And he orders it more than all the rest. He creates a garden. A garden, by definition, is a place of order and beauty and abundance. It's not just like a beautiful wilderness, a random scattering of trees and vegetation. No, a garden is intentional. Because every garden requires a gardener, somebody who designs it. So he creates this ultimate spot of beauty on the earth, and that's where he puts humanity. And then he gives the man and the woman a charge, a a commandment, a, a responsibility. He says to fill the earth and subdue it. He's giving humanity a responsibility, a task. And essentially what he wants them to do is to take this beginning, this Eden, as a sort of go space on the board. He says, see the beauty and the order and abundance that I have created here, and then I want you to go out from this garden and fill the entire earth with this kind of beauty and abundance and order. In other words, he charged humanity with continuing the ordering work that he began as his spirit hovered over those waters. We were intended to reign with God and be the agents of his ordering out of chaos. 
But as you know in the story, the man and the woman were not content to reign with God. They wanted to reign instead of God. They rebelled against him. They rejected his rule over the earth. And so they plunged creation back into chaos. They still went from the garden and they still carried forth this mandate to subdue the earth. But now they did it without communion with God and without the cooperation of the created order. So it was frustrating, difficult, toilsome. And now we see that we live in a universe which does not naturally want to move from chaos to order, but in fact wants to do the opposite. We live in a universe that wants to move from order to chaos. This is why my children's bedrooms are never clean. It's why I have to constantly keep up my yard. Because everything we build, everything we construct, if left unattended, will eventually decay. That is true of our very bodies. Eventually, they will decay into death itself. This world, as scientists tell us, is ruled by the second law of thermodynamics. Things move from order to chaos. So you see this interesting pattern in Genesis 1 and 2. Chaos moves to beauty and order and abundance, and then it deteriorates back into chaos. But our God was not content to abandon his world to chaos. Just as he did at the beginning of creation, He has not abandoned the world to the sea. His spirit still comes. His power is still evident. And he still has the capacity to speak into the chaos and create order. This is picked up in the Psalms. Psalm 93 says this, The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, The Lord on high is mighty. He's picking up that ancient metaphor that this realm of chaos, these waters, the flood, they're powerful, they're mighty, they're intimidating, but more powerful than the chaos of the sea is the God of Israel who speaks and draws order from the waters. Then in Psalm 77, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The message that the psalmist has again and again is that this world, though, seems to be marked by chaos and disorder. There is a God who is more powerful than that. There is a God who can speak to the waters and they will move at his command. There is a God who can still hover over the waters and draw order out of the chaos. What the psalmist is saying to us again and again is that hope within this chaotic universe is to be found in God alone. Not in our attempts at control, not in our devices, because at any moment the sea can rush in and devastate. But there is one more powerful than the sea, and in him we put our hope. In 1815, Captain James Riley left his family in Connecticut to command one of the newest, most advanced merchant ships in the United States Navy called the Commerce. Riley had spent most of his life at sea since he was 15 years old. He had been in various crews of ships all over the world. He had risen through the ranks and now was a commanding officer, a captain. And he left Connecticut with his very experienced crew on the most advanced ship the United States had ever built at that time. But a few weeks after leaving port, 
the unthinkable happened. Off the coast of North Africa, in the midst of a foggy night and a storm, the commerce was blown off course, and it shipwrecked near Cape Bojador. When the sun rose in the morning, Riley and his crew could see that the ship was not too far from the coast. And they may have a chance at surviving if they could get off the wreck quickly enough before it sank entirely. But there was a problem. Riley looked at the shore and he said that assembled there were what he described as a great mass of savages, of natives who were collecting all the cargo from the shipwreck that had washed ashore. And Riley knew that if the crew made it to the beach, they would likely be captured or killed. The other option wasn't any better. It was to lower the lifeboat and try to head out into the open sea and hopefully find a friendly vessel nearby that would rescue them or perhaps a port where they could find shelter. The problem was that between the wreck of the commerce and the open sea were 20-foot breakers all along the Cape. Riley knew that if they attempted to go out to sea, they were likely to be killed and drowned in those huge waves. So the choice was between death on the beach at the hands of the natives or death in the ocean on the breakers. Riley decided to go for the breakers. He ordered his men to put whatever supplies they had left into the single lifeboat. They all climbed in and began to row toward the breakers. Riley said he was not a religious man. He didn't believe that God was actually involved in the day-to-day affairs of the world. But as they rowed closer and closer to those breakers, he felt compelled to pray. He ordered his men to remove their hats, and then he offered up this prayer. Great creator and preserver of the universe, who now sees our distress, we pray thee to spare our lives and permit us to pass through this overwhelming surf to the open sea. But if we are doomed to perish, thy will be done. We commit our souls to the mercy of thee, our God, who gave them. And then Riley reported, as soon as he ended his prayer, the wind ceased. And about a 20-yard gap opened up in the breakers right in front of their boat. And the men rowed effortlessly past this wall of water 20 feet high on either side of them. Years later, Riley was writing a book about his experience at sea. And he included this story. And his publisher begged him not to include this story because it was so bizarre, so fantastical, that it would discredit the entire book. And Riley agreed. He said, I know, this is, this is crazy. But he absolutely insisted on including this story. This is what he told his publisher. I cannot suppress or deny what so clearly appeared to me and my companions as the immediate and merciful act of the Almighty, listening to our prayers and granting our petition at that awful moment when dismay, despair, and death were pressing close upon us. My heart still glows with holy gratitude for this mercy, and I will never be ashamed nor afraid to acknowledge and make known to the world the infinite goodness of my divine creator and preserver. Riley learned quite vividly what the psalmist was speaking about. That in the midst of the chaos of this world, our only hope is to put our hope in the God who is mightier than the sea the God who can deliver us through the roaring flood and at whose voice even the waters tremble. Here's the first thing we need to learn about the Christian biblical view of hope. Hope is not to be found in any of our attempts at controlling the chaos of the world. Hope is found in the God of creation alone. 
That's not the end of it. As you continue through the book of Genesis, just a few chapters after the creation account, we read another story about the chaos of the sea, of the waters destroying the earth in Genesis chapter 6. But in the midst of the flood, God preserves for himself a remnant, Noah and his companions on the ark. Then you read in Exodus the same story retold in a different way. This time it's about God's people being slaves in Egypt and Pharaoh commanding that all the Hebrew babies, the male babies, be thrown into the Nile and drowned. But God was with one child and preserved that child in a little basket floating down the Nile. It's the story of Moses, which is really the story of Noah being retold again on a micro scale of God preserving the life of his chosen leader in the midst of the waters. Of course, Moses grows up to become the deliverer of Israel. And you know the scene, whether you've read it in the Scriptures or just watched it every Easter weekend on ABC. Moses leads the people out of Egypt, and they're being pursued by Pharaoh's army, and then they hit a dead end. They're up against the sea with Pharaoh's army barreling down on them. And once again, the God who separated the waters from the dry land at creation orders the waters to separate. And he leads Moses and the Israelites on dry ground through the sea. And then when Pharaoh's army pursues them into the water, God allows the sea to cover them over. And again, like the story of Noah, the evil and filth of the world is washed away in the sea. What you see in all these stories is an An interesting thing, it isn't just the power of God over the sea again, of his ability to bring order out of seeming chaos. There's another component to these stories which is interesting. And that is, God doesn't just have power over the sea, but he's also with his people as he leads them through it. He was with Noah and his companions, preserving them, and a sign of peace presented to them by God through the bird bringing that olive branch. And then in the story of the Exodus, it's so vivid, God leads his people by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night through the waters. He's with them as they go through. This is a truth that is picked up in the prophets. Isaiah 43, the Lord speaking through the prophet says this, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. God is promising not merely to be the one who can bring order out of chaos, but he promises to be with us when we are in the midst of the chaos. And realizing that he is present with us, we can live without fear in a world that is racked with it. This idea of God being with his people in the waters is somewhat metaphorical or symbolic in the Old Testament. It's spoken of poetically in the Psalms and vividly in the prophets, but it becomes quite literal once you get to the Gospels. Mark chapter 4. Jesus is with his disciples in a boat crossing the Sea of Galilee. He falls asleep when a great tempest strikes The wind and the waves, it's horrible. And the disciples are worried that they're about to drown, that they're going to die in this storm. And they wake Jesus up. They're angry at him. 
And they say, don't you care that we're about to die in this storm? And Jesus looks at them like, what is your problem? Why are you afraid? And then he turns and he looks at the storm and he simply says, peace, be still. And immediately, the wind stops, the waves are still, and they are on a sea that is as smooth as glass. And the disciples turn to each other and they go, who is this guy? that even the wind and the waves obey him. They didn't yet recognize who was in the boat. They didn't realize that the one in the boat with them is the same one who separated the waters of creation, the same one who led Noah through the flood, the same one who ordered the waters to rise up at the exodus, and the one who led his people to freedom and washed away the evil of Pharaoh. They didn't realize that the God of creation the one whose voice is mightier than the sea, was in their boat. Here's what Scripture teaches us. The second great truth about hope. It isn't just that God has power over the chaos of the world and that we should put our hope in Him, but the second truth of hope is this, that if God is in our boat with us, we need not be afraid when chaos appears to be winning. When the floods rise up, when the storms come, even when God does not deliver us from the chaos as we desire or as immediately as we had hoped, we need not be afraid because he has promised to never leave us, never forsake us. He has promised to walk with us through the waters. They will not overwhelm us. And so we can say with David, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because you are with me. James Riley and his crew made it out into the open sea, but that wasn't the end of their adventure. Unfortunately, after a few days, they did not get picked up by a friendly ship, and they were running low on supplies, so they had to make their way back to the coast, not knowing what would happen. When they did land on the beach, the savage natives showed up. One of Riley's men was killed immediately with a spear right through his belly. The others were bound and dragged from the coastline into the desert. They were stripped naked, tied behind camels, and forced to walk for countless miles. Eventually, Captain Riley and the rest of his crew were sold as slaves in North Africa. He spent a year being beaten, dragged around the Saharan Desert, Deprived of food and shelter, his weight dropped from about 240 pounds to 90. He was close to death repeatedly. Riley believed that he would never get home to Connecticut. He would never see his wife or children again. He would never be free. The conditions he endured were unbelievably terrible. One day as he was with a caravan traveling through the desert, Riley shared the story of his sailing adventure and what happened earlier on the beach and his captivity, he shared it with his companions who were in the caravan. And one of them was a Muslim man. And upon hearing Riley's story and recognizing that Riley was ready to just throw in the towel, to give up and despair and prepare to die, this Muslim man rebuked Riley. And he said this to him, Dare you distrust the power of, of this God who has preserved you so long by miracles 
No, my friend, the God of heaven and of earth is your friend, and he will not forsake you. From the mouth of this Muslim came this truth to Riley, that God is his friend. That gave Riley a little bit of hope, a little bit of courage, a little bit of endurance to persevere, to keep going. God will not abandon you. It's the same truth that Jesus communicated to his friends in the boat. Why are you afraid? I'm here. It's the truth that Isaiah was communicating to the ancient Israelites. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. The waters will not overwhelm you. Some of us, in the midst of life's storms, in the floods, in the chaos, cry out for help. We cry out for deliverance, and it appears that our God is not listening, that he is slow to respond, that he doesn't seem to care. In those moments, we must not abandon hope, because the truth is, he's with us. He will not forsake us. And he has purposes beyond our vision. Which brings us to our third truth about hope. It isn't just that God has power over chaos, over the waters. It isn't just that he will be with us through the waters, through the chaos. But there's a third piece. So far we've seen the God of creation in Genesis, the God of liberation in Exodus, the God of of presence, of incarnation in the Gospels. But when you get to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we discover this metaphor of God and the sea takes an interesting twist. In Revelation chapter 21, the Apostle John has been caught up in a vision, a vision of the future, a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And in Revelation 21, he has this kind of throwaway line that you may have read before and never really thought about. But it's interesting. He's given this vision of the new heavens and the new earth, and he says that the sea was no more. There's no ocean. There's no sea. Now, we're supposed to take this literally that, you know, in the age to come, there's going to be like no recreational sports on the water, no no beach vacations. I'm not sure that's how we should interpret this. I think what we need to see is the metaphorical pattern through the whole Bible. And recognize what John is doing. What he is saying is that in the age to come, in the perfected creation, there will be no realm for chaos. There will be no place for evil, for injustice, for ugliness. That realm, that space that the Hebrew Scriptures had always given to that, the sea, will be no more. It isn't like it'll be contained or it'll be there. It it won't even exist. There will be no place for evil whatsoever. And remember, he's writing to early Christians who are undergoing incredible persecution. And he's trying to encourage them. What he's saying to them is, the evil that you are facing, the chaos that you are enduring, the injustice that is happening to you, all of that will be done away with. For this world will be transformed and the goodness and order and beauty that God was cultivating in the beginning and that He envisioned for the whole world will come to pass. And all that you have endured will somehow be taken up and transformed into goodness. The Apostle Paul picks up this idea in Romans chapter 8. 
He says the hope that we long for, the, the resurrection, the, the new life that is to come, is not just for us, those who believe, but in fact that this hope is for all of creation. He says in Romans 8 that the creation itself is groaning in anticipation of the hope that it too will be set free from the curse. That the physical universe itself will be taken up and transformed, set free from all that has frustrated it. But until that day, we hang on to this hope, he says, that all things will work together for the good of those who belong to Christ. See what he's saying? The day will come when there will be no chaos, no injustice, no evil, no tears, to use the imagery of John in Revelation. But until that day, we hang on to this hope, that the things we do face, the chaos that does mark our lives, somehow God is going to take all of that lift it up, and transform it into goodness. We don't know how. We don't know when. But that is the essence of Christian hope. Here's the third truth of Christian hope we have to get. Not just that God brings order out of chaos or that he is with us through the chaos. The third reality of Christian hope is this, that hope is temporary. Hope is not forever. Because eventually we won't need it anymore. Because all that we hope and long for will be fulfilled. It will be accomplished. It will be consummated in the new heaven and the new earth where the sea itself will be no more. Some of us have a hard time believing that. We look back at the the pain, the struggles we've had, the chaos that has swept into our lives, and maybe we're on the other side of it, but we look back on it and think, how did that make any sense whatsoever? What was possibly the point or purpose of that? I can't pretend to give you the answer. All I can tell you is that someday you will look back and it will make sense. James Riley, having been given this little bit of truth and hope from his Muslim companion, persevered as a slave in Africa. Eventually, his story was discovered by a man named William Wilshire, an Englishman, who sought out Riley and literally redeemed him, purchased him, bought him back from his slave owner for $920 and two rifles, nursed him back to health, and eventually Riley returned to America to his family in Connecticut. But he was changed. He was transformed. You see, having been a slave in Africa, Riley came back to the United States with a new understanding of slavery. And he committed himself for the rest of his days to fight for the liberation of the African slaves in America. This is what he said. Adversity has taught me some noble lessons. I have now learned to look with compassion on my enslaved and oppressed fellow creatures. I will exert all my remaining faculties and endeavors to redeem the enslaved and to break in pieces the rod of oppression. And I trust I shall be aided in that holy work by every good, every pious, free, and high-minded citizen in the community and by the friends of mankind throughout the civilized world. It gets more interesting. 
1817, Riley published a book about his experience as a slave. It's actually still available today. It's called Sufferings in Africa. It became a bestseller in the early 19th century because for the first time, white Americans got to hear about the experience of slavery through the eyes of one of their own. And decades later, a copy of Riley's book was picked up by a young lawyer in Illinois. And when Abraham Lincoln became president of the United States, he said that apart from the Bible, no other book influenced his political philosophy more than James Riley's book, a political philosophy that led Lincoln to then emancipate the slaves in America. Does our God bring order out of chaos? Does he transform beauty out of ashes? Does he bring goodness out of evil? That is the bedrock of Christian hope. That all the chaos of this world from the beginning until this day will somehow be taken up, transformed into goodness and glory and beauty and light. So I leave you with these three truths. Number one, hope is not to be found in our feeble attempts at controlling this world. It is to be found in the God of creation alone. Many of you here today probably have a sense of security, a sense of hope rooted in your own brilliance, your own education, your own wealth, your own careers, your own families, whatever it might be. Someday, the waters will come into your life and show that your attempts at control were little more than a placebo. Someday, you will experience the chaos of this world and realize that you have put your hope in the wrong things. It may not be until you're on your deathbed and cannot control the greatest chaos, which is death itself. So I invite you to begin today to shift your hope from the things of this world and put your hope in God alone. Secondly, some of you today, no doubt, are in the midst of the flood. The waters have swept in. You're up to your eyeballs. You don't know how you're going to survive. Life has taken a turn you didn't anticipate. Maybe you've even been crying out to God for deliverance, and he seems to be silent. To you, remember the words of Isaiah. When you walk through the waters, I will be with you. God has not abandoned you. He has not forsaken you. He is with you in the midst of the flood. Reach out to him and take comfort in his presence. And then there are others of you who have been through the flood. You're on the other side of it. And you look back at the chaos that has been your life and you wonder, how does that make any sense whatsoever? And to you, remember the words of Paul in Romans 8. All things work together for the good of those called by Christ Jesus. Someday the chaos of your life will be taken up and transformed with all of creation into the goodness of God. We worship a God of hope, the God who is mightier than the sea, who brings order out of chaos, beauty out of ugliness, abundance out of scarcity. May you continue to worship that God as we go forward today. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, 
I pray for myself and my sisters and brothers that you would give us a clearer vision of who you are and a sober humbleness about who we are. Give us the wisdom to forsake the hopes of this world, to put our hope in you. May we take comfort in the presence of your Spirit that is with us through the storms, just as your Spirit hovered over the waters of creation. And Lord, fill us and our imaginations with a glorious anticipation of the world that is to come. And may we be vessels of hope, like that man that James Riley encountered. May we speak truth to the world around us that you are our friend and seek to be with us. Guide us into these truths, Lord, by your Spirit. And I pray that your presence would be felt by everyone, wherever they may be this morning. We thank you for this grace, and we pray it in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.